0: How many of you out there have ever watched a a Dateline or some cold case file or some other crime TV show? It's okay, you're in a safe place, can admit that. I watch them on occasion. Sometimes as I'm watching them, I become very agitated and upset at the work of the detectives in the show or on the case, and it's because oftentimes the detectives they become so focused on one piece of evidence, or so focused and convinced that one person has done this, become so focused on one suspect that they fail to see the bigger picture. They fail to see the all the other evidence. Their focus on some detail in the case blinds them to a lot of other evidence. I could give. Many examples of times I've seen this, and it's been painfully obvious that they've been wrong, but uh, won't go into that this morning, just, just trust me. But this is often the basis for cold case files, right? There was a crime at one point, it was deemed unsolvable at the time, they can't solve this, and so it gets shelved for years and for decades. And often later, years later, some new DNA evidence will, will come out or a confession will come out. But more often than not, the way these cold case files are solved is a new detective will come in without bias, he'll look at the case with passion, he'll look at all the evidence, and suddenly, like a puzzle, the entire picture begins to come together and they solved the case with the exact same information that the previous detective had. What's the difference between these two detectives? What's the difference between the one that solved the case and the one that couldn't solve the case? Well, some people refer to it as, like, fresh eyes. But the new detective, he was able to step back not follow the rabbit trails that the other detective did, and he was able to see and focus on everything and not just focus on one thing, he was able to see the entire picture. Those who get so focused on details, on the smaller things, we might call them nearsighted or even myopic. They fail to see the large forest because they're looking at the details of trees. Or to put it another way, has anyone seen The Wizard of Oz? This is for my older crowd. (laughs) Some of you guys out there, about time he uses a relevant illustration in his sermons. (laughs) Well, there's a scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy, the lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow, they're standing in front of this giant green floating terrifying face named Oz. And as Dorothy and the others, they're arguing with this floating face, they're arguing with Oz, Dorothy's little dog Toto walks over to the curtain and begins to pull back the curtain with his teeth. There's a curtain on the side, he goes over and he pulls it away. And what's revealed behind the curtain? (laughs) Jeff, I see you got your hand raised. (laughs) (laughs) There's an old man that's controlling and even projecting the giant green face that they see floating in the air. The giant green face is fake. The man behind the curtain is reality. When Dorothy and everyone saw the old man behind the curtain, what did the old man say? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, as if he still Oz. Their focus on this fake floating giant green head kept them from seeing what was actually real, what was actually more important. And I want to say that many of us are nearsighted when we look at everything happening in the world. There are events and there are things currently happening in the world, important things worthy of our attention, worthy of our effort, worthy of our energy, the upcoming election, the coronavirus. And these are issues, many other issues that we should be focused on. These are important things. But my concern for many of us is that we become so distracted by the election and other issues that we fail to see the bigger picture. We're failing to see what's most important in the world. We have our eyes on a giant floating head and are failing to see the reality behind it all. And that's important. Because until we can step back and see the bigger picture, our focus is going to be in the wrong place. And we won't make much of any progress to overcoming the greatest problems in the world. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how God used the ordinary means of teaching, encouragement, and suffering to establish and grow the church in Antioch. When we left there in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas were staying at Antioch and they were teaching the congregation. Luke took a a, a short section to focus on Peter again and, and his escape from Jerusalem. But now he's back in Antioch. Luke comes back to Antioch in chapter 13. And in verse 1 of our text, he mentions that some of the leaders and teachers at the church in Antioch, he mentions them. Notice what they're doing in verse 2. It says they're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. Worshiping and fasting. And I think the idea here, what we see so far in verses 1 to 2, is that they have established the church in Antioch, the church has grown, and now they're committing themselves to the Lord to uncover what they should do next. It's so that's what the worshiping, the praying, and the fasting is for. And in verse 2, the Holy Spirit gives them an answer. He says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we see from the context that, that the work of the Holy Spirit is what? It's, it's for Saul and Barnabas to go out to the world to share the gospel and to create new churches. God has a mission and out of all of the leaders, out of all the people at Antioch, God wanted to take two men, Saul and Barnabas, and have them go build new churches through sharing the gospel. He had other men in mind to stay at Antioch and continue to build the church and grow the church. But he wants to take Saul and Barnabas to... Move beyond. And so, what does the church do to Saul and Barnabas before they send them off? Verse 3 says they laid their hands on them. This is just a a visible demonstration to the congregation that they are set apart for God's new work. What is the point of verses 1 to 3? I think well, the, the point we can take away is that God has specific people in mind to carry out his work and mission in the world. God has specific and certain people in mind to carry out his mission in the world. In the military, uh, you have all kinds of, there's different ranks, there's different, there's kinds of units of people. You have squads, you have platoons, you have companies, you have battalions. How are tasks and missions carried out on the platoon level in the military? Well, the platoon sergeant is going to hear the mission, hear the task. He's going to identify certain people. And he's going to come up with specific people to complete the task. And those people that he identifies will go and do it. When I was a cook and in charge of the kitchen, I had to first understand what was our mission for the day. Are we gonna cook for 500 people or 1,000 people for breakfast and lunch? And how long, uh, uh, what are the meats we're cooking today? What are the starches? And how long and how difficult are those dishes to prepare? And once I would gather all of that information, I would then, all of a sudden, certain people would come to mind that would be good for that task, if that makes sense. Uh, if this was a difficult dish on meats, I'd put one of my stronger cooks on that. If it was an easier dish, I'd put, em, put one of the newer cooks, weaker cooks on that dish. There were people that cooked for 15 years and were still so slow. <laughs> and the point is, I had certain people in mind to carry out certain tasks. God has certain people in mind to carry out, men and women, to carry out different tasks and missions in the world. He had Abraham in mind to start a nation. He set aside Moses to free his people. He called David to be his king. And today he has specific people set apart in his mind to go to different countries. He has specific people he wants to be pastors. He has specific people he wants to be deacons. He has specific people he wants to serve on the praise team. And as the early church did, it is our job to use the ordinary means of fasting, prayer, worship, to come to a clear understanding of who these men and women are. So we've seen so far that God has called Saul and Barnabas to carry out a purpose, to carry out a mission. Does that mean that this mission is going to be smooth? Does that mean it's going to be easy because God has called them? Does that mean that this mission is going to succeed without a hitch. I'm saying right here at this point in the narrative, at verse 9 explicitly states that Luke shifts from calling uh, Saul, Saul to calling him Paul as we, we know him. This probably has connections with Saul being uh, Saul, the king Saul back in the Old Testament and both Saul and Saul in the New Testament are from the tribe of Benjamin. But there's a switch here. And we see that as uh, Paul and Barnabas are set off and they go on this mission to new parts, they begin to have some success. Verse 4 says that they went to Seleucia, which was a port of Antioch, and they set sail to the land of the island of Cyprus. Verses 5 to 7 teaches a couple things about their early mission in Cyprus. First, it says that they targeted the Jewish people. Verse 5 says they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. I think this fits Paul's understanding in Romans that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile I think for that, there's an Old Testament reason for that. Isaiah specifically, which is very influential for Paul, used to teach that when the gospel comes, when the new covenant comes, what's going to happen is God is going to save his people Israel first, and then they're going to be sent out to save the world. So the gospel goes to them first, and then they bring the gospel. That's what we see in the New Testament. Paul a Jew, Peter a Jew, the apostles Jews go to the world. The second thing it teaches us is that Paul and Barnabas covered a lot of ground. We see this in two ways. First, they arrived in Salamis, and they ended up in the city of Paphon. How does that teach us that they covered a lot of ground? Salamis was on the easternmost part of the island, Cyprus, and Paphon is on the westernmost part of the island, so going from east and west, they went across the entire island. And, and if that's not clear enough, you can go to verse 6. It said they had gone through the entire island. So simply, going off what Luke has recorded so far, Paul and Barnabas have been faithfully, and at least not recorded, with little backlash, have been evangelizing a good, a good part of the island. I notice in my own life and when I read uh, Christian biographies, I often see God gives people great success, great joy, even like when they first come to faith, and great success early on in a new ministry, but then he begins to try them and test them. And I think that perhaps he's given Barnabas and Paul some success as they embark on this new mission. But as we are about to see, they're about to come across some difficulty. Paul and Barnabas make it to the other side of the island. They make it to the city named Paphon. And we find out from verse 7 that a proconsul named Sergius Paulus summoned them, that is Barnabas and Saul, to appear before him. So a Roman proconsul was somebody who acted on behalf of a government official. The proconsul represented and stood in for the consul. And the proconsul was often a former consul himself. And as mentioned, the proconsul in our text is a man named Sergius. And verse 7 says that he was a man of intelligence and it also tells us why he summoned them in the first place. Look at this in the end of verse 7, it's amazing. He sought to hear the word of God. That's great news, right? An influential official wants to hear the word of God. He had an open mind and open hearts and he was eager and ready to listen. But things aren't always so easy. The text tells us that there was a man, a part of Sergius' entourage, who had been listening to Barnabas and Saul, and he wasn't happy about the things he was hearing. He's called uh, a couple things in the text, but I'm going to refer to him as Elemas. It says, Elemas... Opposed Barnabas and Paul, verse 8. He opposed them. Verse 8 says he wanted to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Who was this man? Who was Elemas? Elemas, however you want to say it. Luke describes him in a few different ways. Along with belonging to Sergius' group, he was a false prophet, he was a magician. What's a false prophet? Well, he's a false prophet in the sense that he claimed to be a medium of divine revelation when he wasn't. He's also in our text called a magician or sorcerer. Does anybody remember about five chapters back with Simon the magician? Not one. Yes, there was, a, if you guys remember about five chapters back, there's a, there was a text with Simon the Magician. And if you remember Simon, we talked about he was steeped in the occult. And magicians and sorcerers in general, like Simon and the one in our text, they would use demonic power to perform tricks and to perform magic. And that's what Elemis did. But underneath all of that, more important than all of this, if we get to the very bottom of who Elemas represents, if we pull back the curtain, Paul gives us the most telling description of Elemas the magician in verse 10. He calls him a son of the devil. Son of the devil. And that's telling, because we see opposition in a man, but what's being told is that behind the opposition to the sharing of the gospel is actually Satan. The story in the book of Acts, and the entire Bible for that matter, is the story of two kingdoms clashing. It's the story of two kingdoms clashing. There are so many layers in Scripture, and often the most foundational layer, one of the most foundational layers being the kingdom, it often never gets seen or hardly ever comes to the surface, but it's always there, lurking in the background. It's often, often assumed. The story of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, it's often assumed in the narratives, but it is always there. But sometimes, as it does in our text, the story of these two kingdoms clashing, it comes to the forefront and reminds us of what's behind all of the reality that we see going on. Just as God was using Paul and Barnabas to spread the gospel and so spread the kingdom of God on the earth... Paul and Barnabas knew that Elemus, who was opposing the kingdom of God, was ultimately a pawn on Satan's chessboard. Here's the point I want us to see and remember. Behind all of the opposition against us and against our efforts to love and spread the gospel is Satan and demonic forces. We talked about chess uh, just a couple seconds ago. When we look at a chess board, what do we see? We see the pawns, we see the rooks, we see the bishops, we see the queen. And we become distracted on these pieces because they are the ones we see doing all of the action on the board. They're the ones moving around But who's the actual mastermind behind all the pieces? It's the one that's moving the pieces around, right? And it's the same with our opponents in the world. Scripture says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against what? Against principalities and rulers of the unseen world. And so the real problem that Christians face in the world isn't ultimately other people. The real enemy is Satan and demonic forces. Behind the secular push to make Christianity to be considered an emotional crutch and intellectually incoherent, behind the recent push to lower the age of sexual consent and to normalize pedophilia, behind the global sex trafficking, behind any and every opposition to bringing the gospel to the nations, is Satan. Why do many of us in America have a problem with this? Why do we have a problem attributing to Satan? Not so much in a sermon. We can hear it in a sermon, but... In our everyday conversation, talk about how Satan or demons are behind something. Why do we have such a weird time with that? I guess for a couple of reasons. One is because living in America, we have become so conditioned to the presupposition presupposition of naturalism, meaning that all that the physical world is all that exists. And that has created within the American Christian church a syncretic worldview of Christianity and naturalism, which is implicitly ashamed of speaking about non-material realities like the spirit world. In other words, we have been influenced by all we by the all we see is all that exists culture so much that we feel embarrassed in our conversation to talk about the reality of Satan and demons in the world. Satan wants us to focus on everything else happening in the world so we won't be focused on the bigger picture and the bigger problems in the world. He's like the old man in the Wizard of Oz saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And I say this because some of us have become so focused on important current events and issues that we allow them to create division and separation to the extent that some of us don't want to fellowship with one another, don't want to talk to one another, we avoid each other, and we, are, we forget that we are called for an even greater purpose than the American election. Yes, the election, the coronavirus, and many other issues are important. They de- deserve our attention but they aren't near as important as overcoming the kingdom of darkness by being a Christian witness to the world. Some of us are ready to break fellowship with another believer because of our views about a mask. And this is while Satan and demonic influence are spreading throughout the globe. We should be united to put an end to that. If we allow these current issues to divide us, we are failing to see the forest for the trees because we are focused on what is secondary. We're focused on what is secondary or even tertiary of importance. If we are ready to break fellowship with another Christian or fight and be divided with another Christian because of their political or pandemic views. We are more focused on the temporary and earthly kingdoms than we are on the kingdom of God. If we are to stay united, we have to take a step back, look beyond the election and see the bigger picture and the bigger problems happening in the world. So yes, defend your views on the coronavirus, defend your views on politics and the election, but don't let these opinions make you forget that the person you're arguing with is a person for whom Christ died. And don't forget that another Christian that you disagree with, that you have an even greater bond with them than being an American. And you both have a mission in our neighborhoods, in the country, and in the world. If the kingdom of God isn't localized to any one nation, what does that tell us about Christian nationalism? You wanna have pride in a nation? Fine, that's fine. But let's not forget that nations come and go. And the kingdom of God goes beyond any any and all nations. Satan has pawns in any and all nations, and we as ambassadors to the king are to be more focused on extending the kingdom of God to all nations than we are to be about any one temporary nation. The kingdom of God doesn't stay localized. The kingdom of God spreads throughout the entire world. You have pride in America. Good. How much pride do you have in the eternal global kingdom? We should be a people that have way more pride and are way more committed to the kingdom of God than we are to a nation. And I have to say this because I sometimes hear Christians seem to care more about things like America's enemies than they are about seeing the world from the perspective of the kingdom of God. Some of us don't seem to realize that we have more in common and an eternal greater bond with a believer in China than we will ever have with an unbeliever in America. And no matter what happens on November 3rd, November 4th, we will still be Christians. Satan will still be our enemy. The world will still be dying. Jesus will still be king. There is a real Global battle happening as we speak. And my prayer for us at Milford Bible Church and the Christian church in general is that we stay united and not divided over these secondary issues so that we can overcome the real problems in the world. And so, what realistically should our hope of overcoming? Satanic influence and possession of, and of overcoming the, the Satanic kingdom, what should our hopes of that be? What was Paul and Barnabas' hope that a proconsul would believe the gospel in the face of Satanic opposition? After Elemus tries to lead the proconsul, away from the truth of the gospel, listen to Paul's rebuke in verse 10. He says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. In other words, God has a straight, easy path for the proconsul to be saved, and you, Alemus, are bending it all out of shape. This is the work of Satan opposing goodness, opposing righteousness, and in coming into the world. This is the work of the kingdom of darkness opposing the kingdom of God that is breaking into the world. And so, as verse 9 states, this is actually the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. The Holy Spirit announces a punishment on Elimus, saying that he's going to go blind. Look at the last sentence in verse 11. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So the Holy Spirit makes him blind. What does that teach us? What does it teach us that we see somebody from the kingdom of darkness, working in the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God, that he goes blind. The one in the kingdom of darkness goes blind when he opposes the kingdom of God. What does that teach us? What we've seen, as we've seen in Acts a few times, is a showdown between the power of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. What we are seeing is kingdoms clashing. The Holy Spirit in Paul easily overcame the demonic power of Elemus the sorcerer. And that shows us that there is greater power in the kingdom of God than there is in the kingdom of darkness, even though it often looks like the kingdom of darkness is winning. And after seeing the power of God, after hearing this teaching. Verse 12 teaches us that Sergius believed. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So our point to take away from this last section is that our kingdom, God's kingdom, comes with greater power than Satan's kingdom. Imagine you're staring at an old, beat up, rotten house, and even the house, for one reason or another, is actually painted black. And you decide, I'm going to restore this house. And it's a slow process, unless you're Steve Hoffman. And you start replacing rotten boards with the new ones. You begin to redo the flooring. And you even start painting over the black paint with fresh white paint. What you've done is you've taken old, rotten, decaying house and slowly, slowly restored it and brought it back to life. Even the color of the house slowly going from black to white is in in itself an illustration of the renewal process. God looked down at a fallen, decaying, dark, black, evil world, and all of Scripture is telling us about how He's slowly restoring the world By overcoming the evil within it. When we read about Jesus casting out demons or Paul and Barnabas bringing the gospel to an unknown place, that's just one more piece of wood repaired and one more black piece of wood painted over. The kingdom of God comes and slowly overtakes the world and does it precisely because it has the power to do so. The kingdom of God has more power than the kingdom of darkness, and it is currently taking over the world. As the gospel goes to the nations, Christianity is the world's number one religion. There's a story in the Gospels when Jesus he casts out a demon, and when he does it, there are those around him that see him cast out this demon, and they claim that He did it by the power of Satan. How did Jesus respond? He said, "A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand." But, and this is important, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, if I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, then that means the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And I have power to go in, bind the strong man Satan in the kingdom of darkness. And that's demonstrated by me throwing them out easily without struggle. So we see two things here. When we see Jesus or the apostles or Paul and Barnabas in our text overcoming opposition to the gospel in scripture, what we're seeing is the long-awaited kingdom of God breaking into the world and overcoming the kingdom of darkness. The other thing is just, as I mentioned, it's how easily it happens for God, it's it's nothing when he wants to overcome opposition. The kingdom of God is much greater and more powerful than the kingdom of darkness. If you're here today and you're not sure whether or not you should come to Jesus, I plead with you to do so today. If you have not repented and you are not trusting in the gospel, then whether you would acknowledge it or not, you have sided with the enemy. You are denying God by your works. You're opposing him by your works. And God, as we saw in this text, how he... Blinded and overcame Elimius and Satan, he is one day going to return and rid the entire earth of evil. And if you are opposing God by not repenting and believing the gospel, sadly, that means that God will rid the earth of you as well. And for your sins you will suffer eternal conscience torment. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you will repent and believe the gospel, God will forgive you of all of your sins. He will make you a new creation. He will make you, he will place you in the kingdom of God, which is currently taking over the world. And that is all possible because of the death of Jesus Christ Christ. On the cross, his substitutionary death in your place. Repent and believe the gospel. No matter what happens in the next few weeks, the next couple weeks, no matter what happens in the election, Take heart knowing that God's kingdom will never fail. And on November 4th, regardless of the results, we as Christians still have work to do in the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would unite our churches that you would help us see things, prioritize things the way that you do. Yes, Father, you care about the election. Yes, Father, you care about the pandemic. Yes, Father, you care about all these things, but you don't care about them near as much as you do about seeing your kingdom expand, about seeing people come into your kingdom. And so we pray. We pray to you, Father, to unite us for that greater cause. Help us see that these things ultimately are not near as important as as your kingdom work. And we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.